join me in prayer? Lord, as we come to the beginning of a new week and after a week of many events where the deep gloom did show itself, we do ask that your light would pierce the darkness. We ask that your word would shape our souls. We ask, Lord, that we would be a light to others, showing them your covenant in Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So last week we heard all about God's theophany, is the word the theologians use, for God revealing himself to the Gentiles, the epiphany, the theophany of Jesus to the Gentiles. As I told our um, Bible study class earlier today, if you want to know what God's like, look to Jesus. If you want to know what God's will is, look to Jesus. And today is no different. As you have heard me say before, the person of Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the fulfillment of the law. He takes on many roles, and therefore he has many titles. Just think of those that you've heard over the last several weeks, right? In Advent and Christmas and Christmastide, we talk about Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew 1.23. We heard him talked of as the son of David in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. Gabriel tells Mary at the Annunciation that he's the Son of God in Luke 1. And in Luke 2, the angel tells the shepherds that to them that night was born a Savior, a Christ, a Lord. The wise men worship Jesus as a king. And so Herod seeks to destroy him as a king. And so here today we come to celebrate the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. The baptism of Christ in the liturgical year comes right on the heels of the Epiphany, and it's obviously not in chronological order, right? For here we grow to Jesus, as here we uh, go to Jesus, rather, as a grown man, as someone who's about to begin his ministry. And we see Jesus today in the readings as primarily two things, as king and as Christ, or Messiah. Now, as we're going to see, those things are greatly overlapped, like many of Christ's titles. When we call Jesus a king, it is right also to call him a Christ. In fact, it's a little bit redundant, but the two do mean something slightly different. Because the Christ, or the Messiah, the Christos in the Greek, means to be the anointed one, right? To be the anointed one. And we know that monarchs are anointed ones. They're those who are anointed with oil. Think about what happens in the Old Testament. But being king and being Christ are not necessarily the same thing, of course, for King David was not Christ. So, what do I mean when I talk about the anointing and kingship going together? 
Well, some of you probably have also been watching The Crown. I know Leah and I have been following that for some time. And The Crown, of course, is not historically accurate in many things. Um, but it is historically accurate in some things, which makes it a good piece of historical fiction. As we've watched it, one of our favorite episodes is the coronation episode. And those of you that have seen it know what I'm talking about, the grandeur of that, right? And in the coronation of Elizabeth II, we see a piece of ancient history. We see a form of something coming from the Old Testament before us here in the 20th century and now looking back on the 20th century and the 21st century. Right? We can tell that the ceremony is ancient. In fact, you recall in that episode, there's great controversy as to whether it should be televised or not. Um, thank God it was, impartiality, uh, because we get to see it still. And recall in that coronation service, the queen, or Elizabeth, who's to be the queen, is anointed on her hands on her chest, and I believe on her forehead. Such is the anointing of kings. It's a sacramental thing, little s, right? It's something external that speaks to something internal, right? It's the fact that with that anointing, she becomes not just Elizabeth II, but her most gracious majesty, Elizabeth II. Right? Her Most Gracious Majesty is the title given to Queen Elizabeth. When you meet her, you're supposed to do a slight bow or curtsy as you say that and address her that way. And that's actually shorthand for something else, which is her longer title. By the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the faith. And so this title even points to something greater. When we say her most gracious majesty, we're talking about the fact that she is queen by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Which is given to her in that ancient ceremony of anointing. Those words that ceremony is pointing to the reality that we find in Romans 13, where St. Paul writes to the church, let everyone be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Romans 13, 1. But there are actions which bring about permanent change in the queen. And there's also actions which bring about permanent change in the scripture and in us. First of all, let's look at scripture. Let's look at the kings and queens found, or actually just the king, rather, found in the Old Testament. King David and King Saul are both appointed and anointed by the prophet Samuel as king for God's people. In 1 Kings, Zadok the priest anoints Solomon to be king 
of God's people. And in that selection from the psalm that we read today, we're reminded by God through the psalmist that this covenant carries with it something very great for David. Look with me at the bottom of page 2 in your bulletin insert, in the scripture insert. We read, or we read rather, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. My hand will hold him fast, and my arm will make him strong. And then look at the end for the covenant part. I will keep my love for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his line forever and his throne to the days of heaven. So we come to Jesus' title as Son of David, as well as Son of God. For of course, King David died, but his kingdom went on and goes on through Christ forever. But because of this, it's rather curious that at first glance, it seems that Jesus is never anointed a king. At least in the scriptures that we've received, we have no story, no record of Christ being anointed as a king, it seems. And yet, St. Luke through St. Peter tells us that indeed he was anointed. Let's look at the gospel passage together, because I believe the gospel passage talking about Jesus' baptism is his anointing as king. First of all, who's present? The last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, is present to witness it. Look at verse 7 and 8. We see that John knows that he is not worthy to do this, and yet he's told to go ahead and baptize Christ. He says, and he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that brings up another question, and that is, why is Jesus baptized at all? He has no reason for Jewish baptism. Jewish baptism is all about the cleansing of sin. In fact, we go back to Numbers and numerous other Old Testament passages where we read about ceremonial sin and impurity being cleansed with washing. Look at Numbers 19, verse 9. Well, it's not in your bulletin, so I'll read it to you. Numbers 19, starting with verse 9. A man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and put them in a ceremonially clean place outside the camp. They are to be kept by the Israelite community for use in the water of cleansing. It is for purification from sin. Verse 13, if they fail to purify themselves after touching a human corpse, they defile the Lord's tabernacle, and they must be cut off from Israel. Because the water of cleansing has not been sprinkled on them, they are unclean, and their uncleanness remains on them. You can go throughout the Old Testament and find lots of examples about how cleansing is done with holy water. It's a sacramental, a little S, given to the Jews as a sign, but more than a sign, as a spiritual or a physical manifestation, rather, of a spiritual reality 
as Hebrews tells us, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, is a foreshadowing of the New Covenant. And so, for the Jews, baptism was done repeatedly. Ceremonial cleanliness was continued. If you entered into the temple, you had to go through a special hewn-out pool called a mikvah, where you would be cleansed before you entered into the temple, right? And indeed, we see all sorts of examples of this. And we see John's baptism called the baptism of repentance in the book of Acts. But of course, the baptism of repentance is only so good. You see, repentance only covers the sin that you immediately committed preceding it. And so that cleansing had to go on and on and on every time you sinned to be in the presence of God. Some Christians mistakenly view their baptism this way. Maybe you've run across them once in a while. I've heard of Christians being baptized multiple times, as if the first one didn't take somehow. Such Christians, while well-intentioned, are theologically wrong in doing this. There is only one baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because it's not merely about repentance. It's also about anointing, which takes us back to the theme today. It's about a permanent change that goes on in a human being by the will and grace of God. You see, Jesus does not need to be baptized in Jewish baptism. He has nothing to repent of. He's perfect. Jesus, however, transforms baptism. He takes baptism from baptism of repentance, done repeatedly in the Old Testament, to a baptism of regeneration. A baptism that changes the person permanently. Jesus' baptism actually takes baptism and completes it. It affixes another half to it as a great gift to his followers, the church. In the fact, Jesus makes this sacrament of the gospel the entry into the kingdom of God and also a sacrament of transformation, regeneration. But there's more. While for everyone who receives John's baptism, they have to be washed again, when everyone receives the baptism of the Trinity, they've been washed by him. Because Jesus actually doesn't just transform the baptism, but he transforms the water itself. Bishop Maximus of Turin wrote in 380 AD, so that's pretty early, that Christ was baptized not to be made holy by the water, but to make the water holy. And by his cleansing to purify the waters which he touched. Christ is the first to be baptized then, so that Christians will follow him with confidence. So you see, we can have confidence in the transformation of our baptism because of Christ. And at Jesus' baptism, we're given a great theophany, a great revealing of what's actually happening in the sacrament of baptism. When we have a bat 
uh, baptism here, the, the baby or the adult is standing there, and what do you see? You see people around him. You see water poured over the head. You see oil used. But in Jesus' baptism, we see the spiritual reality of what's going on behind the physical. What's going on in the invisible world. Look at Mark again, chapter 1, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So do you see Jesus, in fact, is anointed in his baptism here. But rather than being anointed as king with oil, he's anointed with the very Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity himself. God the Father anoints Jesus with the Holy Spirit and speaks to the reality of who Jesus is, his Son with whom he is well pleased. And so the second part, person of the Trinity is declared as God and is King. And so we are given this gift of anointing in holy baptism. Every Christian is transformed by the Trinity in holy baptism by adding God's permanent anointing to it. Every Christian is permanently transformed by the Holy Spirit. We see this over and over again in the book of Acts. We also see it in Article 27 of the 39 Articles of Religion. And you have a prayer book, so you can open with me. Look with me at page 782. This is how we understand baptism as the church, or as a church. This is article, the 39 Articles of Religion, article number 27, on the bottom of 782, where we read, Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is the sign of regeneration or new birth whereby, as by an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church, the promises of forgiveness of sin and our adoption to be sons of God by the Holy Ghost are visibly signed and sealed. Faith is confirmed and grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church, as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. So you see, the baptism of Christ here informs our theology because it's not all about repentance. It's about anointing. It's about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's about the transformation done to us by God, not something that we can do. It's yet another statement of God's grace to us. And a person who's baptized can never be unbaptized. He or she can become an apostate. They can run away from the faith. They can leave the church. But they can never be unbaptized. 
we say as we anoint in our baptism service that they've been signed and sealed forever. I'll read you from the baptismal service. We say these words as we use holy oil on the person who's just been baptized with water. Their name, receive the sign of the cross as a token of your new life in Christ, in which you shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful soldier and servant to the end of your days. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. So the baptism of our Lord is really an important thing because it reveals not just what goes on and who Jesus is, which is really important, of course, but it reveals how Jesus saves us. It reveals what Christ has done for us, how his kingship and his realm is extended to us in the waters and oil of holy baptism. We are not Christ's or king's, but we are adopted sons and daughters of God, something that can never be taken away. And the Holy Spirit is promised and has been dwelling in us since our baptism. Oh, it's true we can ignore him. It's true we still sin. And yet, he is there to never depart. He's forever changed us. We're forever changed into something permanently different, just as the queen can never not be queen again. So you and I, friends, can never be unmade in baptism. But with that privilege, of course, comes great duty. It's the duty of showing our faith and growing in virtue and doing the work of our king. For as an extension of his kingdom, we're tasked with things to do out of joy, to bring him glory, to bring others to come to know and love him and to be saved by him. It's this that we do as Christians in response to our baptism. We've had this accomplished for us, for the purpose of helping others. So as we renew our baptismal vows, as we do today, and if you take holy water from the baptismal font today, which we'll be offering, remember, this is not something magical, but it is something sacramental. It's a gift given to us to remind us of our baptism and what God's done through his grace and, our anoint and in our anointing. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have shown us the way to the Father. Lord, we thank you that we are saved in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would continually make us mindful of whose we are, of in whose name and with whose cross we've been signed and sealed that we might be part of a kingdom of light piercing the gloom of darkness. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.